Well, I welcome you to worship today, and uh, this is a tremendous weekend of celebration, and uh, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to put your hands together in just praise and thanks to our Lord for what He has done. Over two years ago, we started a journey that we called Two in Two. We talked to you about it, and uh, we uh, told you that we had the exciting goal we believe God had put in our hearts of, of planting two new congregations in the next two years. Well, it's taken just a little bit longer than two years because of some things that we could not foresee or, or control. But by God's grace, it's this weekend that we see the launch of the Saratoga Springs campus. And we're so grateful to God. I'm going to urge you to continue to pray for Pastor Mike and Lisa Adams, uh, for their whole staff and ministry team in Saratoga Springs. But right now, would you just give thanks to our Lord and God by just putting your hands together and thanking him for what he's done. It's going to be a great, great journey. Yeah. God is worthy of our thanks. He's worthy of all of our praise. And thank you. Thank you for just showing your gratitude to the Lord for what he's done here. Well, today we kick off a brand new sermon series called Dealing with Difficult People. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever done something uh, where you got critiqued for that? How did it feel? It's really tough to have pure motives and a clean heart and to know that you're doing something for good and for the glory of God and then to get critiqued for it. Well, that's what we're going to talk about in today's message called Responding to Critics. Mary must have been overwhelmed with gratitude. Um, Jesus had just healed uh, her brother Lazarus. In fact, he hadn't really healed him. He had done more. (laughs) He had raised him from the dead. Her brother Lazarus, whom she loved, had been dead for four days. And Jesus came and stood before the tomb and wept there because of the loss. Because Lazarus was was a close friend. And then Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was literally raised from the dead. And now sometime, a short time after that, there was a sort of banquet, a dinner being thrown in Jesus' honor. And it was being held there in Bethany. And in a spontaneous moment of just overwhelming gratitude, Mary broke open a jar of ointment of perfume and poured it over the feet of Jesus in a display of incredible gratitude. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like for you to open it right now to John chapter 12, and let's begin reading this uh, amazing story and see what lessons we can learn from it today. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, this seems like such a warm-hearted gesture and demonstration of love, I kind of wish the story ended right there. 
It would be a, a, a great little vignette. It would be a great story of, of someone showing their love and gratitude to Jesus. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 4 goes on to say, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Have you ever done anything where people just got all over your case for it? Or began to carp and criticize? Perhaps you decided to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. But your family had a problem with that. And they asked you all kinds of questions. And they critiqued you for making that kind of a statement. Or maybe you decided to go on a short-term mission trip. And some people, maybe co-workers, couldn't believe that you would take off a week from work and go through all of that inconvenience in order to go help someone you'd never even met before. Or maybe you decided it was time to start talking about your faith when God opened the door of opportunity, and you did. And you began to talk about spiritual things, and you thought God was really guiding you, but then the critics came out of the woodwork. And somebody began to call you a holy roller, a fanatic, someone who's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And boy, that cut deep because you know you were just trying to honor God and brag on Jesus a little bit. Or maybe you decided to do a good deed for someone in your neighborhood. And lo and behold, even though you were just trying to help, Somebody began to critique you and accuse you of ulterior motives. Or maybe, just maybe, you tried to lead something. Oh my. Anytime you try to lead anything, critics will begin to aim their guns at you, aim their cannons of criticism, and you will get shot at. In this series that we begin today called Dealing with Difficult People, we're going to learn how from God's word we are instructed to deal with those who really tend to make our lives miserable. Now we all have people like this. We, we all know what that feels like. And in today's opening message, I, I just want to talk to this whole thing of responding to the critics in our lives. And as we go through this series, which will take us right up to Easter... I hope that we'll not only learn a whole lot of practical things to put to use in our daily lives, because that's one of the main reasons we study God's Word. It's not just to fill our heads with information, but to change our lives, to give us practical things that we can do. But you know what I'm praying? I'm praying that through this series, as we study how Jesus especially responded to critics and all kinds of other difficult people, I'm praying that we'll fall in love with Jesus Christ all over again. And if that happens, it'll be well worth the journey. So if you're ready and you have your notes sheet out, some of you'd like to jot some ideas down. If that's helpful for you in learning, I encourage you to do so. The first principle I think we need to learn and acknowledge as we study how to respond to critics is we need to just acknowledge up front that we should be realistic because criticism is inevitable. Criticism is inevitable. 
When Grace Fellowship started almost 21 years ago, I'll never forget the very first Sunday we began. And I got up and I was trying to cast vision for a church that was going to be a little different. And I was trying to empower leaders from day one because that's so important to me. And I stood up on the very first day and I said, now... Uh, we're going to have a wonderful small group ministry and and we're going to take seriously the ministry of the body and all the one another's in the Bible. I'll never forget this. And I said, and what that means that it, it, you know, if you're going through a struggle and maybe you have to spend a day in the hospital, you know, I may not be the one who'll be there for you. It'll probably be your small group leader who will be there first and be the primary caregiver for you. You know what happened? I had three families leave in anger the first Sunday. And I found that I was really good at emptying a church, folks. I want to tell you, I mean, it was tough. We didn't have a lot of people to lose. And we were just getting started, and I thought, welcome to the ministry. I mean, this is a tough way to begin. And and their feeling was, look, if if you're not there for us all the time, uh, how can you call yourself a pastor? And they wrote critical letters. That was day one. Now, I kind of hesitate to tell some of you this because I I don't want to discourage any of the younger leaders among us where God is tapping you on the shoulder and maybe nudging you to step up and step out and, and begin to lead. But I think even at the risk of a little bit of discouragement. I think we've got to be realistic about this. Anytime you say, God will use my life, and especially if it's in a leadership role, you're going to be critiqued. Through the years from that first Sunday, I decided to keep a criticism file. I really did. And it's gotten pretty big, okay? Now, I also keep an encouragement file, and it's much bigger. That's the good news. But I've kept a criticism file, and it's now got three or four folders just jammed with material. And I've also kept criticism through email. And so that's stored on the computer, and that's, that's far more even there, okay? But I took this file out this week and began to read some of them, and Debbie saw me reading this criticism file, and she said, why are you doing that? Why would you torture yourself like that? And I said, well, it's not enjoyable, that's to be sure. But I think we've got to be realistic, and we've got to let people know that, real, that criticism goes with the territory. We've been criticized for having music that's too loud and not loud enough. We've been criticized for having greeters that are in your face when you come in, and greeters that aren't friendly enough, seriously. We've had people critique the fact that we have a cafe. We've had people critique the fact that I'm not directive enough in my leadership, and I've had critical letters that I'm far too directive in my leadership. We've got critique that we don't use enough hymns when we worship. We've been critiqued that we use about one hymn a week, and that's too much. Our music ought to be more contemporary, you know. We ought to be on the cutting edge of Christian music. Folks, the list goes on and on and on. So here's what I want to say to you. Anytime you step up to the plate and start to lead anything, you're going to get critiqued. Think about it. If Jesus, who was perfect got critiqued all the time, and he did, do you think you and I would have any 
less critique? Because we're very imperfect. And we make all kinds of mistakes. Surely, we're going to get critiqued as well. So I, I think that's a realistic starting point right there. There We've got to just acknowledge this is going to happen. And I hope that doesn't discourage you. Because it just goes with the territory. A second principle I want us to see here is that we should be discerning and understand the motives behind the criticism. If your Bible is open there, chapter 12 of John's Gospel, verse 6 says, He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So, in other words, his motives here, even the statement he made and the critique, were skewed. You know, I've always thought that if we could understand the motives of people, it would probably go a long way in helping us not only respond better, but but probably to be a little more gracious when we do and to be more tolerant and patient. You know the truth of the matter? Some criticism is deserved and needed. Do you hear that? Some criticism is needed and can really be helpful. I like Proverbs 15.31. It says, He who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. In other words, look, criticism, if it's properly handled, is often the foundation for improvement. There have been so many criticisms I've received where I've taken the kernel of truth in that and I've changed something because of it and I think we're better because of that. Criticism can be a starting point for improvement if it's properly handled and if it has truth in it. Proverbs 19.25 says, Rebuke a discerning man and he will gain knowledge. So, If there is a kernel of truth in it, Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, used to say, all criticism has a kernel of truth. Well, I slightly disagree with Mr. Trotman. I think that much criticism has a kernel of truth in it. Because believe me, I've received a lot where I've been searching for the kernel of truth for years, and I just can't find it. I don't believe that all critiques have a kernel of truth. But I do believe that much criticism does, and I think we need to look for that. So what are the motives of people when they're critiquing? Well, this is not in your notes, but I want to suggest four possible motives that I think are extremely common when people give criticism. One possible thing that's going on is that they are wounded themselves, and they're simply lashing out. They are wounded themselves. Dennis Fulton used to tell about when he was a little boy, he had a beloved dog he'd had for years. He just loved and adored this dog. And he told about the day when tragically his dog got hit out in the road by a car. And it was, the dog was wounded and he went out to his dog kind of in a panic and wanting to help. He just loved this dog so much. He said, I was heartbroken And he said, I I reached down to pick my dog up to take him in the house to help. And he said, my dog bit me. He said, I was devastated, just a little boy. I ran into the house crying. I just could not wrap my mind around that. How could my own dog bite me? 
He said, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized he bit me because he was hurting so badly himself. Now, I'm going to give you a statement that I hope you'll never forget. You might want to write it down. Hurting people hurt people. Hurting people hurt people. And it's an incredibly common reality that when we are really hurting ourselves, it's just natural for us to spew out criticism to others and to hurt other people because we're hurting so much. A second motivation is jealousy. In fact, I would say that a a tremendous amount of criticism is motivated by pure jealousy. Preachers criticize other preachers. Business people criticize other business people. Entertainers criticize other entertainers. CEOs tend to critique other leaders in business. We, we just tend to be jealous of those people who are perceived as successful in some area where we want to be really successful. And that's simply the way it goes. I think a third motivation is, you might call it just habit. People just get into a critiquing mode. I think you'll admit we live in a society where criticism, even public criticism, is more accepted than ever before. Ask any U.S. president of any political party, and they'll tell you that's true. Ask any public figure in American life, and they'll tell you we're in a different day where you can say just about anything and get by with it. Slander is just common. And so we, we kind of get in the mode. It's a habit of, of criticism. I uh, had a high school basketball coach who was a wonderful coach in so many ways, and yet he had just kind of a habit of, of critiquing everything and never giving a compliment. And so we just learned, don't expect a compliment from Coach Benson. In fact, he would ask questions where you couldn't win. Do you know what I'm saying? You'd be in the middle of a hard practice. You'd be running your guts out. You'd be breathing hard. And he would say, are you tired? And if you said, yeah, I'm tired, he'd say, you're not in shape. You need to get in shape. And if when he asked, are you tired? If you said, no, I'm not tired, he'd say, you're obviously not working hard enough. Get with it. You couldn't win with this guy. And so you just learned you're never going to get a compliment from Coach Benson. He was old school. He thought a compliment would give a player the big head or something. And so it was just a habitual thing with him. I heard about one wife who was constantly carping and ragging on her husband, and she started going to church and heard the gospel and became a Christian. But she still was critical after she became a Christian and still just ripped him up one side and and down the other. And the The husband said, I don't mind her being born again. I just wish she hadn't come back as herself, you know? (laughs) Now, Christians, listen, we ought to be a different kind of people. We ought not to fall into the mold of this world and let the world squeeze us into its mold and just get into the habit of constantly critiquing. But the fourth motivation, I believe, for criticism is good old selfishness. It's not my kind of music. The ministry didn't meet my needs. It wasn't my style. 
they didn't do what I wanted to be done, and so we critique. And the truth is, we're honestly just very narcissistic people. And so if something doesn't go exactly our way, we lash out with criticism to anybody that we think is responsible. By the way, wasn't that Judas' problem really? He didn't care about Jesus, and he certainly didn't care about Mary. When he saw that perfume being poured out, he saw money going down the drain that could have been in his pocket. It was pure selfishness that motivated his criticism. But we need to be discerning and try to figure out what is behind it. A third principle I hope we can take away from this today is that when it comes to responding to critics, we should be cautious because not all criticism should be answered. Now, here's a puzzling thing to me as I've tried to study the Bible and learn from Jesus. Puzzling. Have you ever noticed this? Sometimes Jesus responded to critics, and sometimes he didn't say a word of response and just kept silent. For instance, when the Pharisees said, where do you get this authority to say these things and do these things? Jesus did respond with a question. He said, well, I'll ask you a question first. Where did John the Baptist get his authority? They talked about it among themselves and said, hmm, I feel like we're in a bind here. It feels like he's setting, he's setting us up. And so they said, we're not going to tell you. And he said, well, neither will I tell you where I get this authority. He wouldn't give a straight answer. Or then on another occasion, during one of his trials, when they had false witnesses come and testify against him and accuse him of blasphemy, the high priest looked right at Jesus and said, what are these accusations to you? What do you have to say about this? And Jesus wouldn't say a word. Interesting. And yet at other times, he gave an answer to his critics. When asked, why do you eat with sinners? Jesus said, well, healthy people don't need a physician. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why wouldn't I be mixing it up with unbelievers and sinners? You cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Jesus responded to that and said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. If I'm casting them out by Beelzebub, By whom are your disciples casting them out? And then when they ask, why do you and your disciples break the Sabbath? Jesus said, which of you, if you had an ox that fell in the ditch, wouldn't take it out on the Sabbath? My goodness, guys, why shouldn't I heal this dear woman on the Sabbath day? The Sabbath was not made for man, but man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And so at times Jesus answered, and at times he refrained from giving an answer. I find that very interesting. So here's one of the key issues that we come to in this topic. How do we know? How are you supposed to know when to respond and when not to respond? I think we all agree we could save ourselves a whole lot of grief and do a whole lot of good if we could figure that out, right? Well, I want to share with you about six or seven questions, I think they're in your note sheet, that I think it's good to ask Whenever you're pondering that question, some basic questions to ask yourself. For instance, is the criticism sincere or is the critic just venting his or her anger? Now, that takes a judgment on your part, right? A subjective judgment. 
that you need to make. And if they're just spewing in anger, it may be best not to even get down in the mud and start slinging mud. You don't want to do that. Another question would be, will answering the critic help or do more damage? You know, you learn pretty quickly from some people, if you answer an email of criticism, you'll get a five-page email back. And if you answer that one, you'll get a 10-page email back. It's just not worth it. And you find yourself wondering, where do people have the time to do this? They must not have a life. This is crazy. So you need to ask yourself, is it just going to exacerbate things and do more damage? Another question is, is this the first reply or are we rehashing old arguments? Sometimes you've already gotten together maybe with someone and and gone over something, but they want to keep revisiting it, hoping they can get a different outcome. Another question is, is the criticism reasonable or irrational? You're not going to get very far if it's purely irrational in its base. Another question is does it hurt others or just me? That's a very important one. I think one of the reasons Jesus responded to Judas Iscariot is because his criticism was devaluing and putting down Mary. And I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus responded so directly as he did. Another question is, am I responding objectively or in anger? You see, it takes wisdom to know when to answer and when not to answer. Through the years, one of the critiques, believe it or not, that has come uh, from people to me, it's really come in the form of a question, kind of indirectly. Someone will say, well, uh, I I have family members who are religious, and they they say that Grace Fellowship is a cult. And I, I have trouble not breaking out laughing when I hear that, but... I've had a number of people actually come and say, my coworkers say, yeah, that church, they're taking over the capital region. That's a cult. And uh, again, I have to suppress my smile and laughter. But I, they say, what should, I, what should I say to them, Pastor Rex? And I, I say, well, I do believe you ought to respond to that. And perhaps you could ask them what their definition of a cult is. Because, you know, they're probably just afraid. They probably are looking at a church growing when so many churches are closing down. And and they just get afraid. They're not aware this is not unusual. They don't know that this is happening in pockets of cities all over the United States. And anywhere around the world, the gospel is preached. I mean, people are coming to Christ. But they don't know that. So they're just probably afraid. So ask them, what's your definition of a cult? You know, historically and classically, a cult is a group that's worshiping someone other than Jesus Christ. They're looking as their authority to a book as divinely inspired, a book other than the Bible. And they usually teach that salvation is by works, not by grace through faith. And you can explain to them, none of those things are true of us. And then they'll often say, well, it's just people blindly following a leader. And ask them, well, which leader? Pastor Rex has a criticism file this big. I don't think people are blindly following People push back all the time. We have a strong group of leaders from the elders all throughout the staff. And then maybe you could just say to them, why don't you come and check it out? Come with me if you feel insecure or afraid. Because the truth is many people have come to grace with doubts and wonders like that. And 
And they've gone away saying, surely the presence of the Lord is in that place. And they go away thanking God for the life change that he is bringing. But you need to be very discerning when to respond to criticisms and when not. A fourth principle I think that's important is is be kind to the critic. Answer the criticism, but don't attack the critic. Now, you know, when you think about it, Jesus could have ripped Judas to shreds, couldn't he? Judas, you conniving thief, you son of perdition, you. How dare you critique this woman who has pure motives when your heart is vile and wicked? He could have ripped him to shreds. I'm amazed. I'm impressed at how kind he was, but he was direct. Look at what he said in verse 7. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, what does that statement mean? Jesus is basically saying there, look, there's a sense in which she's preparing my body for burial here with this anointing. You see, even though Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took Jesus' body down off the cross a few days later, after his death there, and they tried to prepare it for burial, they did the best they could, but because the Sabbath was quickly approaching, they didn't have time to do it fully. And Jesus is kind of saying, look, in a, in a very symbolic way, she's kind of preparing my body for burial here. We need to be kind to our critics because you can find yourself winning the battle if you engage in bitter dispute and argument but losing the war in terms of ever winning this person for Christ. You see, the thing I keep in my mind when critics come around is, look, I want to kill you with kindness. I want to see you come to Jesus Christ if you're not a believer already and a follower of Christ. My main goal is not to win some argument, but it's to win you to Christ. That's what I'm praying. That's what I'm thinking. I think there's a beautiful example of this recently out on the West Coast. A pastor out there of a large church had an associate pastor that he had to dismiss because of a number of improprieties. And the associate pastor, when he was dismissed from the church, Uh, sent a letter. He had the mailing list. He sent a letter out to all 5,000 members of the church, inviting them that coming weekend to a new church opening just a couple miles away, and he invited everybody to come and join him. And so you can imagine, when everybody got to church that week, everybody was buzzing about that letter, right, that the associate pastor had written And so what the senior pastor did when he got up to preach, he got up and said, look, uh, I received a letter this week inviting me to a new church. He said, I'm not going to go. I would encourage you not to. Uh, But in terms of the criticisms he brought against the leaders of this church, he said, I want you to know they're not true. And that's really all I'm going to say about that. Let's study God's word together. And the church broke into applause. You see, they appreciated the fact They was answering the criticism, but not attacking and putting down the critic. And I think that's a good example. Criticisms can really hurt if they come from someone close to us and if there's some truth in it. 
If your child says, Dad, you never spend any time with me, that can sting. If someone close to you says, you never pray, you're just not a person of prayer, that can hurt. If someone in your family says, your priorities are all out of whack, you're a hypocrite, ooh, that can bite. I think we need to try to be kind when we're criticized, kind to the people who critique us, and guard our words very carefully. 1 Peter 3, 9 reads, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. But here's the thing I want you to see. Even though Jesus was so kind, really, to Judas, it was just a few verses after this, if you read on, that Judas began to collaborate with the religious leaders to betray Jesus and sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. And you know what that tells me? No matter how kind you are, no matter how well-intentioned you are, you're not going to win You're not going to win every critic over. Well, there's one final principle I want us to learn as we wrap up today. And that is, be focused, never allow criticism to distort the big picture. Jesus said, she's preparing my body for burial here. In other words, Jesus had come on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. And no criticism was going to deter him or detour him from fulfilling that mission of dying on the cross for our sins. You see, here's one of the biggest practical problems we run into with criticism. And this is where it really becomes a shame. It's hard enough to deal with emotionally. It's tough enough to deal with all the relational turmoil. But one of the most tragic things is when it deviates us from our purpose and what's most important. When Nehemiah, the great leader in the Old Testament, was called by God to go from being cupbearer to the king to go and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, he had a grand mission and purpose. But the moment he stepped up to obey God, the critics began to come out in force. Two of them particularly, Tobiah and Sanballat, began to critique everything from Nehemiah's motives to the quality of the work. If even a fox runs up on that wall, it'll fall down. That's a pathetic job you guys are doing. They critiqued every step. Finally, they sent an open letter inviting him to sort of a town meeting to discuss this whole thing. And Nehemiah's response, I believe, is brilliant. You know what Nehemiah said to all that? He said, I'm doing a great work here, and I will not come down. I'm not going to let your criticism deter me from what God has called me to do. And that's my final challenge to you. If in your life today you're struggling with how to respond to critics, whether it's on a huge level, whether it's public or private, whether it's just a small little thing, don't let anyone deter you from what God has called you to do. That's one of the reasons I respect Abraham Lincoln so much. I believe he was the best president, the greatest president we've ever had. But you know, there's probably never a leader that got more criticism than Abraham Lincoln. 
his own wife, Mary Todd, when she was his fiancée, she said, I believe that Abraham Lincoln will be president one day. Otherwise, I wouldn't marry him because he's not very pretty. (laughs) And Lincoln shot back his own uh, criticism to her of the Todd family. He said, God only needs one D in his name, but the the Todds need two Ds in theirs. And when he became president, even members of his own cabinet were relentless with him. Secretary of War William Stanton called him the original baboon. Secretary Seward referred to his painful imbecility. These are his key leaders on his cabinet. People talked about his clumsiness, that he was a giraffe at 6'4". They called him a third-rate lawyer and a hick because of his crude country upbringing. But Abraham Lincoln deflected a lot of it with humor, and he took the criticism, and he didn't let it keep him from his purpose. And ultimately, that purpose was accomplished of abolishing slavery and most of all, preserving the union of these United States. And at his death, William Stanton, who had called him the original guerrilla, said, there lies the greatest leader of men ever to live. Folks, don't let anyone keep you from following the purpose God has called you to. And so I close with this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Father, we've got a lot of people in our lives that are kind of hard to get along with. Sometimes we can be that way too. Help us, Lord, to see the truth that may be in a critique that comes. Help us to be open to changing and open to to becoming what you want us to be. But help us never to let critics deter us from the cause and the purpose to which you've called us. We give you thanks today and help us in this series to learn from Jesus and to fall in love with him all over again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.